told the first service, I accidentally brought my pen up with me, and uh, it was an accident, but I was thinking about it, and I was like, what are people going to think if the pastor has a red pen at the pulpit with them? They might be thinking the pastor's taking notes on you guys while you're taking notes about me. And if anybody's falling asleep, I'm going to pull out my pen and just write it down right up here. So just, you've been warned. You've been warned. All right. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we're going to be at. We're going to be talking about discipleship in the home, discipleship and evangelism in the home. Uh, today, I want to open up with a couple of statistics about discipleship and evangelism in North America. And you're already familiar probably with both of these statistics. I doubt either one of them is going to catch you off guard. I'm not going for the shock and awe factor. Uh, you know, again, I just want to make some points, you know, make some observations and talk through those uh, with you all uh, this morning. The first statistic is from a survey by the Pew Research Center that says, and this was, I think, two years ago when this study was done, so it's, uh, you know, a couple of years old, but it said at that point in time, 65% of American adults identify as Christians. Now, that's down from a decade before that, I think that was back in 2009, where 77% of Americans identified as Christians. And so that's a change of almost 13 million people. You've probably heard some similar statistics, you know, saying uh, close to the same thing. Sometimes the, the percentages and the numbers change a little bit, but you get a general idea for the, traje uh, the trajectory uh, that we're going in here. And uh, so... Again, I'm not going for the shock and awe factor. You've probably heard these. I just want to, you know, interact with it a little bit. What do you think about when you hear that number? You know, what's going through your mind? Some of you might be just like, I'm tired of statistics. You can make them say anything you want. I get that. You know, you might be going that direction. Uh, some of you might be, you know, kind of saddened by it and being like, man, this, this hurts. I don't like seeing our country going this, this direction. This is you know, good at all. Some, it might elicit some fear. And that's not what I'm trying to go for again this morning. Uh, and honestly, in one of my few moments of optimism, you know, over this last year, I read this statistic, and, and I was just kind of like, wow, 65% of Americans are Christians. That's great. You know, and I know that, that sounds pretty good to me, you know, but, uh, but really, you, it's a, a statistic, and so you can't just take it at face value. You have to step back and look at it and say, you know, um, I doubt uh, that, well, to be a Christian, you have to believe in the gospel, and I doubt that they used that definition of Christianity when they went and did the survey. And so that's a wee bit of problem because in Scripture they use the gospel as to define a Christian. So even this uh, survey probably isn't super accurate for that reason alone. I'm also skeptical about any statistic that doesn't reflect like this, that doesn't reflect uh, the, the wide path that Jesus talked about that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And, uh, and this uh, statistics certainly doesn't do that. It almost like flips it on its head, and so it makes you kind of wonder a little bit there. And so I'm a little skeptical for that reason. Uh, but this statistic also doesn't tell us anything that we, already, we don't already know, that Scripture hasn't already told, told us. You know, we've been warned that, you know, it is a narrow path that leads to life. We've been warned that, you know, living the Christian life and that faith and, and the public can be very lonely and isolating and that the world is not encouraging us. They are not cheerleading us on in that endeavor and many times are pushing back and against. 
This is all things that Scripture has told us. And so really this, this statistic, um, while it's informative you know, and interesting, uh, it doesn't tell us a whole lot new uh, that we don't already know. I'm not trying to sh- tell you this again. I just want to be really clear. I'm, I'm not trying to you know, go the direction sometimes we do with when we present a t- statistic that you know, there's this battle that we're losing and that uh, you know, unless we evangelize more and give more money to the church, you know, then, then we're just failing kind of thing. That's, that's not my intent this morning, even though if you do either one of those things, it's very good. We need to evangelize more, and we need to also you know, be giving. We need to be generous in our giving. Uh, but that's not the direction I'm going this morning. I want to highlight that statistic that I just gave you, to you with another statistic that I think should surprise us. And I think it should be a wake-up call for us as a church because unlike the first statistic that deals with the world and the culture, something that is very outside of our control, this next statistic deals with an area that we do have more biblical authority in, that we have been given a measure of control over and an absolute responsibility for. And I believe it's a battle that we should be winning. It's a battle that affects our leader's ability to lead the church. It affects our witness and our testimony. And I think it also impacts our ability to effectively evangelize the world around us. It has to do with evangelism and discipleship within our homes. It has to do with evangelism and discipleship not outside of the church, but inside of the church. Not in the culture that the world has created, but in the culture that we have created. This statistic says that there is a 70 to 88% failure rate in raising children within the church. 70 to 88%. That's because there's been multiple studies. They don't always agree on the exact percentage, but all of the percentages are way higher than I think any of us would want to say that we are happy and content with, right? So basically 70 to 88% of our kids who grow up in the church are walking away not only from the church, but from their faith after they graduate from high school. Even with this statistic, I want to give some caution. Because, again, statistics don't give us the full spectrum, the full story. We don't understand everything that's going on. It's always more complex. Uh, George Barna pointed this out with this statistic in particular. A few years ago, he did a study, and he recognized that some of these teens that were leaving after they graduated high school were actually coming back. You know, that's good news. Some of them were. It wasn't enough to make us feel happy about the statistic, but we got to realize that uh, some were coming back, but it was many times after they were grown up and they were adults. They uh, had some, made some major life choices, like who they were going to marry, having kids, and their careers, and they made a lot of those choices outside of the wisdom of God's Word in their life, and so as a result, had created a lot of baggage, you know, which made it difficult, and praise God that, you know, they came back to the church, but it, it created some issues that were unique in their own lives, big hurdles that they had to get through. And uh, I want to be careful this morning as we're talking through this because I'm, I'm not trying to be condemning. I think God, uh, we always, whenever we talk about statistics, we always have to recognize that God is greater than any statistic. God's grace and the statistics say that every one of us should be condemned because of our sin. God overcame that statistic. And I am grateful and I'm thankful for that. And as we talk through this, I want to keep that in the forefront of our minds. Whether, you know, whether it's a teenager out there that you know, is sitting in the pews and being like, as soon as I graduate from high school, I'm out of here. Whether it's 
you know, parents who are feeling like they have failed in some of this department, you know, of just raising kids or, or grand, grandparents and, and their grandkids, whatever it might be, God's grace is sufficient. These statistics do not define us. All I'm trying to point out is that we've got something that we've got to work on in the church, and, and this is a very important thing for us to, to look at. And so this statistic, 70 to 88% of kids walking away from their faith in the church, is, uh, is, is, is that it's, uh, it's true, uh, whether, it's, whether it's a big church, whether it's a small church, uh, whether, it's, um, you know, whether it's a church with great communicating pastors, or whether they have you know, churches with nerdy pastors, you've been blessed with two of them here. So Preston and myself were representing the nerdy pastors. And it doesn't matter how many, you know, specialized programs churches have come up with to address this, how many specialized pastors we've thrown at some of these problems. And I'm not trying to undermine these ministries and programs of pastors, but I just want to make a point that, uh, that regardless of all of these different things that we've tried to do to address this problem, it's not, it hasn't addressed the problem. See, this statistic that we're talking about here with 70 to 88% of our kids walking away from the faith is different than that first statistic because the, some statistics are so big and broad and kind of out there, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around and understand. Sadly, on this one, we get a front row seat. We're seeing this. This is something that we can witness just around us. And, and because of that, it, it grieves our hearts as we witness that. And so... Uh, one of the things that we've, we've noticed is we can gather more teens, we can gather more children, but we haven't been effective in keeping those kids and keeping those teens. And so it kind of begs the question, what's going on? What do we need to do? And so while this is most certainly a church issue, and Lord willing, in a, maybe another month or so, I think I'm on the schedule to preach again, we might be able to talk about this maybe a little bit more. It's most certainly a church issue. But I believe at the center and core of this issue is the home and the family. There's a pastor by the name of uh, Vody Bauckham. Some of you might be familiar with him. And he was, he's engaged with this, uh, this statistic quite a bit in some of his sermons. And one of the things that he said was really interesting. He was looking at it and he was like, we know this isn't the case, that we're losing a lot of our kids. You know, they're, they're making these choices and walking away from faith in the church. It's like, but what I want to know is what's unique about the, the kids and the teens that are sticking around? What's unique about them? And he started surveying. He started doing some, some research and asking pastors and youth pastors, what is the common thread that you see is, is true of the kids that are sticking around after they graduate? And it's a great question. And do you know what they kept saying over and over and over again? He kept hearing it thing that really set them apart. It wasn't the programs of the church and everything else going on, which is good, and we need those things. But the one thing that they said was the common thread that they saw consistently in the lives of these teens that were sticking around was a strong spiritual influence by their parents and in the home. That was one thing that they kept pointing to. And he was like, well, what about the kids? Because some kids don't have spiritual families. They come in into the church and they don't have that because that really is a blessing. I don't think we realize how much of a blessing that is. Like, what keeps them connected? And he said, well, they're usually adopted in by somebody in the church. And he says, so effectively, they're being adopted into the home. And they're like, yeah, you know, by the youth pastor or a family in the church or whoever it might be. The home is essential for the life of the church. 
and the ministry of the church and for the effective evangelization of the world. Because they look to us and say, if we can't, if we're not even ministering and teaching our own kids properly, how can we have a testimony and a voice to the world that rings true when we can't do it for our own? And so this passage in Psalm 127, 3 through 5, I know I told you to go to Deuteronomy, but this is a passage we're going to read real quick, and I think it's great because it expresses the critical nature of parents and children and the home and the life of the church, I think. And it starts off by saying that, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. A heritage. We don't use the word heritage a whole lot. A word that we do use a little bit more commonly is an inheritance. That's kind of a, it's a similar word, a little different nuance, but very similar. Children are an inheritance from the Lord. They are, uh, an inheritance is something that you have been given, that you have been entrusted with, that is not yours. You have been given it by somebody else. And that's what an inheritance is. Your parents give it to you, their parents maybe gave it to them, and so forth and so on. And you track it all the way back. And this passage tracks it all the way back and says, children are inheritance from the Lord. God has given them to us. And they are the fruit of the womb, a reward. Our children are a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Sounds pretty important. If you're out on the battlefield and you got a bow and you don't have any arrows, I don't know, I'm sure somebody's made some funny jokes about that guy who didn't show up with any arrows, but that's a problem. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver. I was blessed in the first service to be able to go like this. I had a full quiver over there in the first row. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. That's a profound verse there talking about the blessing of, of parents and their children and the essential nature that they play in the, in the church. It sounds to me like God is telling us godly parents and their children and family are one of our greatest assets, uh, that they are rewards and blessings that we have. Uh, when I was young, I think I was like sixth grade, seventh grade, somewhere in that range, we lived in Oklahoma, and my uh, mom and dad decided to get us, uh, my brother and my, my little brother and I, Christmas presents uh, that were probably unique from other previous years. This one year we opened up uh, Christmas morning, our package was probably about this big, about that fat, about that wide, opened it up, and we were both really surprised that our parents got us bows. Not just like little sissy bows, we got compound bows. These bows had some like heft to them, and we were excited. The only bows we had ever shot probably up to that point were just homemade bows that we made ourselves out of sticks and string. Any of you boys probably, or parents of boys, know what that's like, and are probably surprised that our parents got us bows in sixth grade and my younger brother too. So anyways, like any boys would do, we went outside, we started shooting. We shot like, we shot the target. Once we hit the target we had set up once, we thought we were hunters. We were like, oh, now we can hit anything. You know, so we took our bows out and we started just like shooting at all kinds of stuff. It doesn't take long before we, we found ourselves out in our front pasture. And when we were out in the front pasture, you know, boys with bows do what boys with bows do, stupid things. And it crossed my mind and I was like, I wonder what will happen if I shoot this straight up in the air. That's just what boys do. And so that's what I did. So you pulled the bow back, got the arrow in it. And again, this is a powerful bow. This isn't like one of those little Walmart ones that costs like $10, you know, that it's like it shoots at an arc. You know, this has some heft to it. And so I shoot it. 
right after I shot it, that's when I started thinking, huh. You know, that's when you're like, where is this going? You ask all the questions that would have been good to ask before. There's some spiritual application here too somewhere. You start asking all the questions you should have asked before, and you start thinking, oh, this could be bad. You start like really thinking through the whole thing. I was relieved uh, just for a moment when, you know, it's getting really high. It's really, you know, getting high up there. But I had accidentally angled it just far enough where it's not going to come straight down on my brother and I. So I was like, whew. We're still watching it, you know, and you kind of just kind of glint, and you see just that little streak in the sky. It starts coming down, you're following it. You know, you're happy, happy that you're not under it, and then you start looking, and I realize it's coming down kind of near my neighbor's place. We've got a horse pasture, and he has a pasture, you know, with a big field, and then his house. It wasn't near his house. It's coming down his field somewhere, and I was watching it, and it's like, where's that going to come down at? He's got, my neighbor had like a really nice dog kennel with like hunting dogs that he raised. And you know what hunters are like without dogs. Hunters with dogs, don't mess with them. This arrow came down right on the other side of his dog kennel inside of an in, like a, a, the, the fenced in area where he kept all of his prized hunting dogs. I would have rather that hair, arrow hit me or my brother, preferably my brother at that moment in time. <laughs> I remember stopping and, and, and just like, we got we to gotta figure out what to do. We, my brother and I, we ran over there as fast as we could. We looked to make sure my neighbor's truck wasn't in the driveway. And then we jumped over the fence. We ran over there. And sure enough, that arrow had come right down in the middle, not of a dog, thankfully, but of that pen where all the dogs were. We jumped over the fence, grabbed the arrow, ran away. And my parents never knew until they watched the streaming service during the first service this morning. <laughs> the reason I tell you that is because I think that's how we deal with kids a lot of times. You know, kids are this blessing from the Lord, like arrows and someone, you know, in the hands of some, a warrior with a bow. But it's like we're, we're shooting them off, you know, all over the place, and, and it's like after we've kind of launched them, after we've kind of directed them, then we're kind of like, ah. Oh. That might have not have been a great idea. That not, might not have, I didn't fully think through this, you know, and, and all of a sudden, these kids that were supposed to be a, a blessing, you know, and this great resource and encouragement and future leaders of the church, all of a sudden, they're reaching, wreaking all kinds of havoc and craziness, you know, which is certain, certain level is expected. But, you know, they're, they're not what we expected. And the response culturally to this, and I wouldn't say just out there in outside culture of the church, I think even within the culture, is the solution has been to, well, maybe we shouldn't have as many kids. That's been one of the solutions, practically. You're like, let's not have kids. Or let's not have them until we're a lot older in life. You know, that's kind of been the, the response. We actually have a, a you need 2.1 reproduction rate to be able to just keep the, the population status quo. I think we're one, at 1.8. It's kind of a dying culture. And as this is reflected. Even before COVID hit, uh, the birth rate was going down, and we're, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen after COVID. And so we see this trend of, of looking at kids and being like, well, maybe the solution is to just have fewer of them. And, uh, and I'm not trying to make statements about kids who have lots of kids or not enough kids. That's not where I'm going with this. Please don't feel judged by, by any of that. I just want us to understand what kids are from a biblical mindset. 
Bodhi Bauckham, again, and when he was dealing, I think it was a message called Centrality of the Home. One of the th things he said really struck me. He said, what other, what other blessing that God gives us do we handle so frugally? He probably said it a lot better than I just did. But what other blessing does God give us? And we're like, uh, you know, money. Oh, no, God, that's way too much money. No, way too much money. Don't, you just, you give it to somebody else. I'll just take a li little bit. And if you do have to give me some, God, just wait till I'm a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and can learn to handle that money. You know, that's, that's all. What other blessing does God give his people that we handle so frugally and, and kind of push back? Say, no. If God's serious that these are a blessing, these kids are a blessing or to be embraced. But just like the arrows, it matters how we aim them. It matters how we, it sounds horrible, uh, it matters how we shoot them. It matters how we shoot our kids. Oh, there, that's a great sermon title for you, Brenda. <laughs> it matters how we shoot our kids, how we aim our kids. That's the problem with some of these analogies and the spiritual application with them. You end up saying some weird things. Kids are a blessing from the Lord. So is the solution to have fewer kids or is the solution for me to recognize that I am the receiver of the divine gift of blessing, the holder of the bow, and that I take my responsibility seriously to appreciate the power of the bow and the blessing of the arrow and to be trained to shoot accurately. That's the beauty of the passage we're going to be looking at in just a second in Deuteronomy 6, is that it talks about that very thing, how to handle the bow of our responsibility as parents and help our aim, aim our children toward a God-glorifying target that is both for his glory and our good. And this book of Deuteronomy is sandwiched between some great generational failures. They were just coming off of the generation that had come out of the, the land of Egypt as slaves. They had witnessed God's all kinds of crazy miracles I can't even imagine. They'd come off of that. They got to the doorstep of the promised land, the promise that God said, this is yours to go and take possession of. And they had seen everything that God had did, and yet they continued to show distrust. They did not trust the Lord. And as a result, they were sent to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died off, except for a few that did trust God. That was a major generational failing that had come before. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God warns Israel through Moses and says, more generational failings are coming. I see these. This is going to happen. And so that just kind of builds up the essentialness of them listening to this. This is like very deeply on Moses' heart and God's heart. This is God's heart for us. It's like we know the, the tendency of the world is not to go move our kids and our families towards God. It's to move them away. We know that. We know that. So this is important that you listen. If you want to, you know, to be blessed and receive the blessings of God, and not just for you but for your children, you need to listen to this. And that's kind of the context of this book of Deuteronomy. It's kind of Moses is at the end of his life, and he's sharing those, la those last bits of wisdom and encouragement and challenge to the Israelites. And this is one of the, I think, most beautiful parts that I love here in Deuteronomy 6. And so we're going to be looking at it, and we're going to take note of five things in this passage that will help our aim as parents. Deuteronomy 6, 1 through, uh, 1 through 3 says this. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. This is kind of cool because Moses is 
teaching them to teach their kids, and he's saying, I'm, and he's saying, God has told me to teach you. I am being faithful in this responsibility right now. He's already doing that. He's setting the model for them, and it's, I think it's a cool thing to, to realize there. But verse two is when, when it really starts coming home here. He says, I'm teaching you, uh, God has told me to teach you that you may do these laws and commandments, and you're going over to the land to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. I love it. Not only you, God's heart and his desire was not just for Israel, it, you know, in that generation. It was for them and their sons and their son's son. And it's Mother's Day, and you might be feeling left out, but I think it'd be okay. God would be okay with me saying, this is for you moms and your daughters and your daughter's daughters. This is a generational blessing. He wanted the heart of God is that this is passed on, that this is an inheritance that continues to be passed on, the goodness and the blessing uh, that the children are meant to be in life. It's meant to be embraced. And so uh, we see this throughout this passage in Deuteronomy 6. We keep seeing sons and sons and children and fathers and fathers. It keeps repeating this language over and over and over again. And again, we want to see the heart of God, to, to see the desire of this generational passing of faith and the blessings that come when we obey the Lord. And so he says uh, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So the question is, is there's this desire of God to see his blessings poured out on his people and their, his people's children and their grandchildren. The question is, is, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? What's going to help us to aim our children in that God-glorifying direction that, uh, that will help things to go well with us and, and be a blessing to us? And he starts to tell us in verse 4, what is it going to take? Verse 4, continue reading with me. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you want to notice how to say that in Hebrew, talk to Preston. He's been working on that. <laughs> Preston, I hope you got it right. Did you? It's close enough. Talk to, talk to Preston afterwards. He'll hook you up. That is an important statement, especially for all of us. It's an important truth. Uh, devout Jews would quote this two times a day. It's called the Shema. And it's, it's so crucial, especially as the Israelites were going into the promised land. It was filled with these Canaanites who did not love the Lord. And so, they, you know, he's telling them, he's like, the Lord your God is one, the Shema. And make sure you remember that because you're going to be tempted to go all different sorts of ways. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. This is the great command that's echoed in the New Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Listen closely. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts uh, of your house and on your gates. This is the first thing that I want you to write down if you're, you are taking notes. And I'm taking notes if you are not taking notes. I got a little more writing to do. This might take a while. All right, if you're taking notes, point number one, parents, and aiming your kids, 
want you to know that the life you live with your kids is the best, the absolute best Sunday school they could have. The life that you live with your kids is the best Sunday school and that you have been called to be their primary Sunday school teacher. I hope I'm using language that makes sense to you here. I want to get it through our heads, you know. And the church has a role. I don't want to minimize that and detract from that. But I want, to, I want for us to understand what our role is as believers and as parents in our families and with our children. No one else is going to be there when you sit in your house. You know, and when you're, when you're getting up in the morning, when you go on to bed at night, when you're coming and you're going. If someone else is there, that's creepy. You're in a cult and call me. I will get you help. Get out of that. Parents, that is you. That is your role and responsibility. And I love this passage because it's, 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 again, great to send our kids to Sunday school and learn, but here we see that you know, our life with our kids that God has given us, that time that we share together is the best Sunday school. It says, it gives us a couple of words in here that are, <coughs> I think are really unique and, and are good for us to talk about. It says, teach, talk, bind, and write. Teach, talk, bind, and write. Eunice and I, uh, we were helping out with the youth, some of the youth ministry stuff a couple of months ago, and we were talking about uh, discipling our kids uh, with parents. We were talking about some of the, the things that we both do, um, you know, her and I both, that are unique and help us disciple our kids from different directions. In this verse, I kind of started seeing those stand out a little bit more. Eunice is an amazing, she's a homeschool teacher, and she's amazing at that. One of the things that she is really gifted at is organizing, making sure that we have the regularly scheduled devotions, Bible reading, Bible memorization, you know, all these kind of things built into what we do in the home. And whether you're a homeschooler or not, that is one of our primary roles uh, as parents in the home. This is something that we need to be doing uh, with our kids. And Eunice is, is amazing uh, at that and doing that with our kids. She's also, so she's amazing at teaching the kids, that intentional sit-down time with them and teaching them. She's also super awesome at writing scriptures down. I can go through my house. This morning I was eating breakfast, looked up on the wall. It's not a scripture, but it was a great, like, focuser on, on God and his word. And it says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. It's a, a quote from one of the songs we love to sing. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. That's an, a great thing to start my day off when I get up. When I uh, help wash dishes, and I go up and I'm doing dishes. Eunice has verses up there next to the sink, right up there, and it, it just verses that remind her that the task she has been called to a, as a mom, even menial things, seemingly menial, like washing dishes or whatever else it is, that it has eternal significance when we are serving our families for the sake of the gospel and teaching them, and service is important. And so she, she has verses all over the place in the house that constantly remind uh, our kids, you know, that constantly keep the, uh, the word of God in front of us. She does an amazing job with that. Sadly, I'm a pastor and I don't do as good with that, but don't worry. I got, I got some strong points too, a little bit. One of the things that I love to do is, is just the, the talking and maybe the binding part, the talking uh, part. I love talking with my kids, uh, just in normal everyday life. Uh, and our kids are thinking. I don't know if you realize how much they're thinking, but they're thinking deep thoughts all the time. Janelle, my She's four-year-old now, but she, uh, I think this was like a year ago or so, she was in the back of my truck in, in her little car seat, and it was really quiet. The other kids were in the truck with me, and Janelle, she just pops up, and she was like, Daddy, what is grass? Like, philosophically, like, not just, 
I'm like, what's grass? It was like, what is, I mean, just like, seriously, like some, some philosopher said it. I'm like, I don't know, get a plant, leave me alone. Then she was like, and, and she started going on this whole tangent, she was like, what is blue? I don't know if you've tried to describe, like, tell someone what blue is. It's really hard. I don't know what to say. But she's sitting back there and she's thinking. She's constantly thinking about, you know, like stuff. All of our kids are. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's frustrating, you know, when we, we try to limit when our kids learn to an hour on Sunday mornings and maybe Wednesday nights, you know, and, and, and expect them to ask questions, engage with everything. It's good, but you know what? I found as a pastor, and, you know, for almost 18 years or so here, that, uh, that, you know, after kids get up in the morning and they probably fought with their kids about, or their parents with what they're going to wear and they're just stressed about getting to church on time and they're sitting down, when I say, hey, do you have any questions? What do you want to talk about? It's usually crickets. And that's, it's not because they don't have questions. It's just that the questions are usually coming up in life and all these other places whenever we're doing things. And we've got to be ready as parents to engage, to be ready when those questions come up, to be able to ready to engage and talk with them about that. And that's something that I do a little bit better. Eunice is usually so tired after school. She's like, oh, you know, I'm done. And I'm like, I'm ready. I love it. I love talking with my kids at nighttime, at bedtime. They know I'm a sucker for this. My kids, if they don't want to go to bed, they'll just be like, hey, daddy. You know, they'll ask me some, you know, deep spiritual question. They know I will stay up with them all night if they want to talk about it at that point in time. Uh, but it's like legitimate stuff. But even as a pastor, I, sometimes I feel horrible on myself. You know, just like Abigail asked me the other day. Uh, I, I point to Abigail like she's here, but she was here in the first service and she's sitting right there. So if I go like that, that's who I'm pointing to, Abigail's ghost. So uh, Abigail, she was like, Daddy, will you read the Bible with me? I mean, that's one of the most precious things that your kids can ask you. You know what I found myself doing? I've, I'm a pastor, so I have to say, of course, but I'm like, not now, let's wait till later. Did I do it later? One time I did, and the other time I did. So I 50-50 there. But I was looking back on it, I was just like, I've got to be ready for those. I've got to be ready to put everything else aside when my kids are asking me these questions. They want to read the Bible with me. I mean, that's, that's something we've got to be ready for as parents. We've got to be ready to teach. We've got to be ready to uh, talk. We've got to be ready to write. and We've got to be ready to bind these things so they're ever-present in our homes uh, before us. We got to be ready for that, for the unplanned and for the planned. All right, second thing out of that little portion of scripture I want us to, to talk about a little bit is parents, we need to know that the life that you live with your kids is wasted if we are not sold out for God. The life that God has blessed us with, that we live with our kids, is wasted if we are not completely and wholly sold out for God. I've flip-flopped the order of these first two points that I gave to you because I want to make a, I want to make a crucial point, is that a lot of parents, Christian parents, get the first point right and rely a lot on the teaching side of things, but, and, but they don't rely on the Shema and the great command. The, the truth of it is, the truth of it is, is we found that if we don't if we don't get the love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength right, it almost, I won't say that it doesn't matter what we teach them, but our kids are going to see right through it. And it's, 
And if it does have an effect, sometimes it turns them off to it. Because our kids see the, the hypocrisy. And so the life that we live with our kids is wasted if we're not sold out for God. We've got to be We've got to be hitting the target that we're asking them to aim and shoot for. Again, I've, been, I've got horrible eyesight. My, my, I'm right-handed, but my right eye is horrible, and so I have to shoot with my left eye, and consequently with a bow, for anyone who shoots with bows, when you're trying to shoot with a, you know, non-dominant eyes, when you close it and everything shifts in weird ways, you're just kind of like, what? And so now, you know, when I, I want my kids to learn how to shoot a bow, I'm just kind of like, here, I hope you hit the target, and you won't be surprised to know that my kids stink at hitting the target. You know, it's like they're very unsuccessful. They love trying. I enjoy watching them try, but they're failing a lot, and a large part of that is because I have not successfully shot the target myself, and this is the target that is non-negotiable for us. If we want to see the blessings of God transferred from our lives into our children's lives, those great promises inherited in them, this is a non-negotiable. We have, to, we have to be sold out for the Lord. The Shema, the Lord our God is one. There is no other. There is no other God. I want you to get this, parents. This is my opinion, and it's strongly stated. But I believe that our idolatry as parents is the number one culprit in undermining our children's faith, not the world. The world matters. The world has an impact, it has an influence, and Brent did a great job talking about that last week. That's a lot of stuff that we can't control that is bombarding our kids. But you know what? There's a culture here that we can control, that we can check, that we can you know, contrast with Scripture and see if it's matching up with it. And I think that idolatry as parents, our idolatry is the number one culprit in our kids and undermining our children's faith. And we've got to check that. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Children know, they can see every time that we find joy or we put our faith and our trust and our hope in anything other than Christ. We have just taught them. We have just taught them idolatry. We have, they have seen through our faith and they've seen a different way, a different truth, a different God to worship. We teach even when we are teaching and it's important that our, gods, our, our children see us focused on God. The great command uh, that comes right after the Shema, it states that there is only one God, you know, who's supremely powerful, and because of that, he deserves our all. It's also called the all command. We love God with all of our heart, which is the seat of our emotions and our affections and, and just our, our passions and everything. It's kind of starting from the smallest bit of who we are, and it's, it's expanding it out. And it says we got to love God with all of our heart, We've got to love God with all of our soul. The soul is the more expansive broad of everything we are as humans. When God created us, Adam and Eve, out of the, the, uh, the dirt and pulled them up and created them, it was the totality of who they are, their arms and legs, their intellect, their emotions. It includes the heart, but is more than just the heart. And you start seeing that, that um, you know, as they talk through this great command, it's slowly expanding the heart, the soul, and then it talks about the might. We gotta love God with all of our might or strength. Now, does it mean because I'm stronger than my wife Eunice that I can love God more than her? It's not referring just to our physical strength. What it is referring to, actually the adverb form of this word strength means literally very. That's what the adverb form of this, this might word means, is very. And one of the 
uh, commentators I was reading said, we love God with all of our variedness. I was like, I've never heard that before, but it kind of struck me. Well, however we love God, it's very, it's very, very, variedness. It was like with the totality of everything, all of our heart, all of our bodies, all of our intellect, and everything that I have, all of my resources, everything that falls under my power and abilities, I am lo loving God very much with. That's the way we as parents have been called to love God. And if we're not loving God that way, our kids aren't just statistics. God's grace is sufficient to overcome this. But I have to look at the practicality of all and say, you know what? This is hurting our kids if we as parents can't live this kind of life out before them. Kids must see that we're sold out for God. Everything else, the music lessons, soccer lessons, saving for college, and helping them get married, none of that matters if we don't teach them how to love the Lord. That is the most important thing. Everything else is meaningless if we don't teach them that. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15 here. I've really got to make some hay. Is it really 12 already? How did I go slower in the second service than the first service? Just to forewarn you, I went 15 minutes over. Y'all are looking like a good 40 at this point in time, but I'll keep it, I'll keep it going fast. All right, Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. The parents' third thing to help aim our children is don't forget. We must remember. The default is to forget. Eunice, when I'm walking out the door and I'm supposed to remember something, she's telling me, John, remember this. She will also put whatever I'm supposed to remember in front of the door. So I cannot physically open the door without you know, having an impact what I'm supposed to remember. She will also stick a sticky note on the door telling me to remember what's in front of the door and what she also told me to remember. And you know what I still do? I still come to work and have forgotten whatever it is I was supposed to remember. Default is, our default is to forget, and I'm horrible with this. The, the teaching, the talking, and the writing, and the binding, I want us to understand this, is not just for our kids. This is for us. One of the, the negative sides of, of growing up, the downside of growing up, is that you don't know. The downside of being grown up is that you, hold on, I forgot. It's that you forget. That's the problem. And so what God is commanding the, the Israelites to do is for their benefit just as much as for the benefit for the children. We have to remember. We have to remember constantly. He tells us two things to remember. He says, remember who you are without God. You were slaves in Egypt. We are slaves to sin. We've got to remember this. We've got to keep it ever before us. And you also have to remember that there is nothing that you have that God did not give to you. It's like, remember these two things, people Keep you humble, keep you thankful, and it'll keep you and future generations close to God if you keep those truths before you. The Jews had some amazing ways of remembering these things. I don't have a whole lot of time to go into them, 
but uh, it's, it's kind of, it was a little more built into their culture, like in, in the, you know, their faith and culture. They had some uh, feasts in the book of Leviticus that they were commanded to observe. Uh, Passover, there was some other things like the Feast of Tabernacles or, or of Tents that they were commanded to do. And it, it was really cool because it was the way that the Bible was kind of, was ingrained into life. It was really cool. With the Passover, the, uh, the father in their home, they would celebrate this as a meal. And the whole meal help them remember the, the exodus out of Egypt and what God did and what he rescued them from and what he gave them. It reminded them all that. And one of the things that, that the patriarch of the family, the oldest male would do, was would take the little children through the home looking for leaven because they're not supposed to have leaven in the house during Passover. And so the oldest male, you know, imagine, sorry, Al, can I use you as an example? Imagine Al bringing all the kids in the family through the, all the cupboards you know, looking under the table and, you know, maybe in the bathroom, you know, I don't know where all you're going to look out. But imagine that. And imagine the kids being like, why is, why is grandpa bringing us all over these places doing this, looking for leaven? You know what Al gets to do then? He gets to tell them all about what God had done. That's kind of what it was done. The Feast of Tabernacles was another great time because the Israelites would actually go out and the Jews, would, they, would, they would camp in tents in the fall after the harvest. They would celebrate the harvest. They'd go in, tent, uh, in tents and that would remind them of their ancestors as they were in, lived in tents during the Exodus. It helped them to remember and it's practical things that parents did with their kids to keep that, that memory ever before them. And so don't forget, I forgot it's an excuse that does not work with parents. It doesn't work with cops. It didn't work for you ever either. I don't think it's going to work for God. Don't forget. Deuteronomy 6, 16 through 19. Read with me quickly. You shall not put the Lord your God to test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land and the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Parents, fourth thing to help aim your children is don't grumble. Do you know what happened at Massa? That was when Israelites came out of Egypt. They were going across the wilderness on the way to the promised land. God had provided for them in all kinds of miraculous and amazing ways. And they said, God, we're thirsty. It's not God, bad to let God know that you're thirsty or hungry. The problem was, is they said, God, we're thirsty. We're so thirsty that we think that it would have been better for us if we would have stayed in Egypt. God had provided for them this whole way. And all of a sudden, because of one tangible need that they needed right now that wasn't being filled the way that they wanted to, they questioned, questioned all the goodness of God in its entirety and said it would have been better if we would have stayed in the slavery in Egypt than to be here trusting in God. It's a slap to God's face. No one, compared, no one can provide for you or me better than our Heavenly Father can. And that grumbling, uh, that grumbling is a red flag for us as believers. When you find yourself grumbling, you have forgotten something very important, where you came from and God's provision in your life. If you hear somebody else grumbling, it's a good challenge for them too and saying, where's your focus? Who are you focused on, you or God? What's more important? And parents are grumbling, are grumbling turns the heart, our hearts and the hearts of our kids back to a life without God. Don't grumble. 
Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25. When your sons ask you, I'm going to shorten this passage up just a little bit for the sake of time and you mothers who actually want to eat on Mother's Day. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25. When your sons ask you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we, are, we're, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us uh, out, of the, uh, out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and waters great and uh, grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And he continues on and on and on talking about, you know, these, uh, you know, telling them about the greatness of God. The cool thing, it says, when your son asks you, when your son asks you about the commandments and the testimonies and all these things, parents, we got to be ready to tell them. That's the fifth point. Parents, be ready with a story. The cool thing is, uh, you know, when... When questions are asked, having that story to tell them is so crucial. It's easy for us to say because I said so, or probably more better, better than that is because the Bible said so. But I think what's great for us to be able to point to is a story where the truth of God's word has intersected our lives in a practical way that helps to teach our kids. And you know what? If we're trusting our God the same way that the, you know, that God was telling them to here in this passage, do you know what God will give you? Stories. It's so important that we tell our kids Bible stories, and I think it's just as important, I can't say more important, I think just as important for them to tell your stories about God's word being lived out and its truth and its power in your life and how it impacted you in a, in a, in a God-glorifying sort of way. Those are the stories that our kids need to hear. When we talk about songs, they're like, you know, you don't tell them this, this is the only song you can sing and this is, you know, because I like it. Tell them why you like the song. Tell them the story because this is almost guaranteed. Every song that we love and we hold dear in our own personal lives, there's a story that drove that truth of that worship song deep within our hearts. Do you know what our kids need to hear? They don't need just to hear the song. They need to hear the story behind the song, the God-exalting story of God coming in and his truth intersecting our lives. That's what they need to hear. So if you are not content with losing 70 to 88% of our kids, parents or grandparents, then remember that the life you live with your kids is the best Sunday school they could ever have. Remember that the life you live with your kids is wasted if you are not completely sold out for God. Parents, don't forget, remember, parents, don't grumble. And parents, be ready to tell the story of God's glory and provision in your life. I've got a sign. I, actually, I don't got a sign. I want to get a sign. I've seen a lot of these signs. My uh, father-in-law, my uh, Eunice's folks have it above their door. As you leave their home, it's on the inside of the door. It's right above, and it says, you are now entering the mission field. I love that sign. I was like, I want to get one of those signs. That'd be cool. I want to get two of those signs now. I want one that goes on the inside of my house, and I want one that goes on the outside of my house because I need to remember as a parent that when I'm coming home, the mission field is right there. And if we can't take care of the mission field that God has given to us, what makes us think that God is going to bless us with the big things? If we're if we are faithful with the small, I can't help but think that God will honor that and trust us 
with some of those big things. When we're healthy in the homes, it helps give us healthy leaders. When we have healthy leaders, we have healthy churches. When we have healthy churches, we can adopt into a good place for them to grow. I think that's the kind of home and family that God wants Calvary to be, and I hope you agree.